hello, and welcome to both the Millennial Politics Podcast and the Brand New Podcast, a podcast brought to you by the folks at Brand New Congress. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and you are listening to our joint series on Venezuela. Today, I'm joined by Dan Kovalik, human rights and labor lawyer and author of The Plot to Control the World, How the U.S. Spent Billions to Change the Outcome of Elections Around the World. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Jordan. I really appreciate it. Of course. So let's start with the big question. What exactly is happening in Venezuela? And with your knowledge of U.S. intervention around the world, how can we contextualize it with the history of U.S. foreign policy? Right. Well, so what is happening in Venezuela right now is very much in line with the series of U.S. interventions that have taken place in Latin America since the Spanish-American War in 1898. Um, this is really a pretty open and naked grab for resources. Um, and we don't have to, you know, to dream that up. John Bolton, the national security advisor of Donald Trump, has made it clear that oil is the big reason uh, that we're going into Venezuela. Venezuela has the largest oil reserves on Earth. They also have some of the largest gold, diamond, and coltan reserves on Earth. And uh, the U.S. wants to regain control over those resources, uh, control that they lost when Hugo Chavez was elected president in 1998. And um, so what we see is that the U.S. has recognized this Juan Guaido, a guy who was who never ran for president, much less did he ever receive even one uh, vote for president. The U.S. has recognized him as president and uh, is attempting to force regime change in Venezuela. That's what's happening there. And we're seeing it unfold before our eyes with very little dissent amongst any politicians or the mainstream media. And how exactly did Juan Guaido come to power? Why is he at the center of regime change? Well, because the U.S. picked him. Um, we know that Mike Pence called Guaido uh, the day before he announced himself as president and told him to announce himself as president. Meanwhile, in Venezuela, over 80% of Venezuelans polled said they had no idea who this guy was. He has virtually no rec name recognition in Venezuela, or didn't before all this happened. I'm sure they know of him now. Um, so he kind of came out of nowhere. He was the head of the National Assembly uh, for a short time. That's a rotating position. So, so he wasn't even elected to that position. But the U.S. decided that they would use his rotating onto that position as the fig leaf to uh, to say that he has some um, uh, legitimacy to, to the presidency, and that, that's what's happened. I mean, the analogy really would be, it's not a perfect analogy, uh, but it would be that a country would recognize Nancy Pelosi as president because she's in line somehow for the presidency of the U.S., but you know, only if, you know, Trump and uh, Pence were you know, somehow incapacitated. And no one's claiming Maduro's incapacitated. So 
there's a lot of gymnastics here that have been done to justify this. But that's essentially where we're at at this point. And in terms of legitimacy, you've written quite extensively on the Venezuelan elections. Could you walk us through the election process for Maduro? Right. Well, first of all, I you know, to me, I, I don't see any basis for calling it illegitimate. I was an election observer, by the way, at both those elections in 2013 and 2018. And they're the same election, same electoral process was used in those elections. By the way, it's the same electoral process that produced the National Assembly as well, which is controlled by the opposition. And no one is doubting the legitimacy of that election, which took place in 2015. So there's a lot of cognitive dissonance here. But in any case, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter, after observing, I think, something like 92 elections in the world, in 92 different countries, said that Venezuela had the very best electoral system. And it is a very elegant system that's uniform throughout the country uh, in which uh, one has to um, activate the electoral machine by uh, presenting their fingerprint on uh, the first machine you go to and showing their picture ID. And then once that happens, uh, they walk over to the actual electoral machine and they cast their ballot electronically. The machine then prints out a paper receipt and then they walk over and put their receipt um, inside a cardboard box which is sealed at the end of the election day. And then by the end of the night, something like 54% um, uh, boxes and 54% of all um, polling places are audited to make sure that the paper ballots match up with uh, the electoral count. And so it's pretty much a foolproof process, again, as people recognize when they choose to. Um, and this is how Maduro was elected. And, and again, in 2013, he ran against Henry Caprillas in a very contested election. He won by a very narrow margin with a huge percentage of uh, voters going to the polls. While it was a close election, again, there's really no claim, a valid claim that it was somehow improper. In 2018, Maduro ran against a guy named Henry Falcone, who is from the business community of Venezuela. And while the Turnout was lower, about 46% of, of the electorate voted. And, and because there was high abstention, because the, the, some sectors of the opposition did call for an abstention, um, still 46% of the people went to the polls. And of those who voted, 67% voted for Nicolas Maduro. So I don't see where the question is about his legitimacy. In fact, there's a certain irony here that, you know, uh, the main guy questioning his legitimacy, Donald Trump, um, lost to Hillary Clinton by nearly three million votes, and he's president. So, but that that's essentially, you know, how, how Nicolas Maduro has been elected. And among the reasons that the U.S. and other international bodies say that 
the 2018 election was illegitimate? Is the banning of certain opposition candidates from participating, voter intimidation, vote buying, even offering food to starving individuals, uh, if they would vote for Maduro as an election observer, you would obviously have more context. What is your understanding of these accusations and why in particular were opposition candidates banned from participating? Right. So, um, first of all, there weren't, you know, there were only a few people who weren't able to run um, for election, and there were some procedural issues for that. Um, you know, you also have the situation with uh, Leopoldo Lopez, who's been in jail, but he's been in jail for inciting violence um, in uh, Venezuela, not because he's uh, an opponent, a political opponent of, of, of Maduro. And meanwhile, again, this Henry Falcone, who's from the business community, was uh, permitted to run. He did run. And other candidates chose not to run because they knew they would lose to Maduro. I mean, that's the other fact. The other interesting part of all this is that Trump threatened Falcone with sanctions um, before the election, threatening, threatening him with sanctions if he ran. Because Trump did not want the election to go forward with any opposition candidates because he totally wanted to delegitimize that election. But nonetheless, Falcone went forward um, with his campaign and with the election. Um, and in terms of this claim that they gave food to people to vote, again, I, I actually hadn't heard that particular claim. The claim I had heard and they you know they often will will make this claim of social democratic or socialist governments is that they give food out all the time to the poor and that somehow that's an incentive for them it's as if any social program it would be as if food stamps the fact we give food stamps to the poor somehow encourages them to vote a certain way that's really the claim here and it's not a valid claim. I mean, the Venezuelan government has this CLAP program in which it provides food uh, to people who need it um, from farmers' collectives. And they do it all the time, not just around election time. So there, there isn't a, a legitimate claim that somehow it was a bribe uh, to vote, nor did I ever see intimidation of voters. And again, I, I don't see any... Um, backing for that claim. Um, so, again, um, I think certainly the election in 2018 compares quite favorably to the 2016 uh, election in the U.S. where you had a million voters who were wrongfully taken off the voter rolls, um, in which there was, you know, certainly blatant fraud in states like North Carolina. Uh, and in which, again, the guy who won uh, didn't even – he got three million votes less than his opponent. So, you know, no elections are perfect, certainly. But I think that the Venezuelan election that produced Nicolas Maduro uh, was free and fair by international standards. And why was it that after the 2013 elections had such high turnout that the 2018 election had such low turnout? Yeah, well, it was because, again, some of the opposition did call for abstention. 
And because, look, I mean, Venezuela is going through a difficult period. There's no question about that. And it has hurt support for Maduro, um, you know, because there is a certain amount of deprivation there. I can't deny that, though I think, you know, people need to realize that the deprivation largely comes from the U.S. sanctions against Venezuela and also the artificial depression of, of oil prices, which the U.S. and Saudi Arabia embarked upon in 2014, specifically to hurt countries like Venezuela. Um, but, but notwithstanding that, people, certainly there was a lack of enthusiasm or less enthusiasm than they had in 2013 because the economy's been battered so badly since, again, the 2014 uh, lowering of oil prices and the 2015 beginning of sanctions. And so um, certainly people, there was a certain demoralization, but I'll tell you my experience, at least as an election observer, was that the abstention took place in the wealthier areas. So, you know, we go to a, a wealthy neighborhood, go to a polling place there, and, and, you know, it might be that, like, no one's there voting. But meanwhile, in the poorer barrios, there was a much more vibrant um, and brisk voting. So, um, again, I think uh, some of what happening is, you know, it represents the class divisions uh, within Venezuela. And I think the middle class, which you know, did, I think, supported the Chavista revolution to some extent because they enjoyed the social programs of Chavez, even whether they needed him particularly or not. You know, but again, once the economy started getting hurt, it's those people that fell away a little bit um, because, you know, their lives did become more difficult. And you mentioned earlier the opposition inciting violence. Can you speak more to that? Again, there's been, especially since 2000, well, first of all, let's, we need to start with a couple things and remind people of the fact that the opposition in 2002 engaged in a coup against Hugo Chavez, who was the democratically elected president. Sectors of the military, with the support of the opposition, kidnapped Chavez, took him to, to an island and held him over the weekend. By the, it was Easter weekend, 2002, and, and overthrew the government. The only reason Chavez was brought back to power is because the poor from the barrios came down from the mountains to to demand Chavez be returned, and he was. But the point is... The opposition showed its hand in in committing violence. Kidnapping someone, especially a sitting president, is an act of violence, obviously. Um, and by the way, the first thing the opposition did was throw out the Constitution, which was democratically approved in 1999. They disbanded the National Assembly. They disbanded the Supreme Court. In this very short time that they held office, which again shows their lack of support uh, for real democracy. But in terms of other acts of violence, since 2014, there's been several episodes in which you've had these garimbas, which have lasted for sometimes weeks, where 
some sectors of the opposition uh, block roads, um, sometimes lighting tires on fire to prevent traffic um, from moving. Some of those folks have been armed with various forms of weapons. They've attacked policemen. They've attacked bystanders, have set up booby traps, which have decapitated motorcyclists. There's been uh, incidents in which they've set people on fire, including um, uh, some famous cases where they targeted Afro-Venezuelans, black Venezuelans, uh, to set them on fire because they've associated um, uh, black people with the Bolivarian Revolution, uh, which is quite interesting, I mean, which I should note because we don't hear about that a lot, that, I mean, if you look at who's supporting Maduro, you know, and you can see that from from pictures of, of pro-government rallies, you see poor working-class people who tend to be darker skin as well because these are the people who benefited from the revolution. Meanwhile, the opposition tends to be whiter skinned, better, you know, more well-to-do. You know, so there's this class and racial division in the country that we don't get a very good glimpse of uh, most of the time. And the U.S. is clearly supporting the white elite there. Um, you know, which, you know, there's a huge irony to this because, you know, uh, people in the U.S., a lot of people, a lot of liberals, even leftists, who would generally support the types of people that are supporting Maduro um, are being taken in by, by all this anti-Maduro uh, propaganda, but, but in any case. But so, you know, going back to the violence, you know, these garimbas were, you know, horrific in, time, ter- time, in, in terms of the violence that they produced. But again, rarely do we hear about that uh, in the media. And what exactly is the Bolivarian Revolution, and how do race and color play into it? Yeah, so um, the Bolivarian Revolution was, first of all, a democratic revolution that was, you know, you could say it was brought in by Chavez, but really Chavez was produced by the Bolivarian Revolution. Uh, you know, the the poor and working class of Venezuela and indigenous people and Afro-Venezuelans had been oppressed for a very long time. And they finally united to elect uh, a president, and that president was Hugo Chavez. They elected him in 1998. And in 1999, uh, Chavez quickly moved to you know, begin this revolutionary process in which he held um, constituent assembly meetings throughout the country in which the people helped draft a new constitution. That constitution was then approved by referendum. The constitution uh, includes uh, really radical democratic procedures um, which are still in place today, which allow uh, the president to be recalled based on a certain amount of signatures, which created this new electoral process that I've already spoken about. And, and this was the big part of the Bolivarian Revolution, was to democratize Venezuela. But it also, under the new constitution, 
recognized racial minorities, recognized Afro-Venezuelans, recognized indigenous peoples, and recognized, you know, their rights for the first time ever. These people were invisible prior to Chavez uh, being elected. And again, there's a very strong racial component to, to the opposition's ire against the Bolivarian Revolution. They resented the things the revolution has done uh, for darker-skinned people, and they resented the fact that Chavez was, in, in their view, black, and he was made fun of for that. Um, similarly, Maduro has been made fun of for that, you know. And, and so that's, you know, again, there's, there's a real class and racial element to the Bolivarian Revolution in ways that most of us see as enlightened and, and, and forward-thinking. And when you talk about democracy, it definitely conflicts with what we hear in the U.S. Uh, we hear that Maduro is a dictator. We heard the same thing about Chavez, uh, that there's political repression. What is your perspective on the truth of democracy, especially under Maduro? Again, I, I find these critiques not only to be disingenuous, but frankly hypocritical. So first of all, again, the Bolivarian Revolution is at its heart a democratic revolution. And it has put in place uh, very radical forms of democracy which have transformed that country. So we have to start um, with that premise. Moreover, the truth is that this revolution has been one of the more benevolent revolutions in world history. I've said this before, and I'll explain what I mean by this. You know, uh, most revolutions that we think about tend to have their, you know, reigns of terror, the guillotines or the red terror in, in the Soviet Union or the cultural revolution in China. You know, Venezuela hasn't had any of this. Um, in fact, they've been very forgiving towards their opponents, even towards opponents who have acted uh, treasonously by, for example, kidnapping Chavez and overthrowing his government. I mean, Chavez forgave most of those people, and a lot of those people are still in the opposition to this day. Could you imagine... If one of us were able to kidnap Donald Trump, I mean, I'm, I am even reluctant to say this over the, you know, in an interview, just to say that you would kidnap Donald Trump will get you into trouble. But can you imagine if you actually did kidnap him and hold him captive um, over a weekend on some island? You'd be vaporized, right? But there weren't such reprisals after the coup in 2002. Chavez actually tried to engage in reconciliation with the opposition. And maybe that was even a mistake. He probably should have been tougher on those people. Any other government would have been. Uh, but to me, that shows the nature of the Bolivarian Revolution, that it's very uh, forgiving and that it's very benevolent. And, and these claims that it's somehow a repressive regime are just, to me, completely unfair. You've alluded a lot to kind of the hypo hypocrisy 
of the United States in how it talks about Venezuela. And I think we really, when we talk about this, we kind of have to establish the truth of how the U.S. has approached, you know, what it means for the U.S. to quote unquote spread democracy across the world, especially the history of the U.S. intervening in in Central and South America. What what exactly is that history? Yeah, so it's been a very shameful history of the U.S. time and again undermining democracy and supporting dictatorship. And so we can, you know, it's hard to even know where to begin. We can talk about the U.S. uh, intervention in Nicaragua, which, you know, began with multiple uh, invasions of the U.S. Marines in the early 20th century, and then the establishment of the Somoza dictatorship in the 1930s, which continued until 1979. We can talk about the U.S.'s overthrow of the democratically elected president, Jacobo Arbenz, in Guatemala in 1954, which led to a series of military dictatorships which carried out genocide in Guatemala. It's now accepted that they killed about 200,000 people, mostly Mayan Indians, in what is recognized uh, as a genocide. The U.S. supported a military coup in Brazil in 1964, which overthrew a democratically elected president. The U.S. supported a military coup in Chile in 1973, against the democratically elected president, Salvador Allende. The U.S. supported uh, the coup in Honduras in 2009, uh, which overthrew a democratically elected president and which put in power a government that's still in power, which has been killing trade unionists and human rights leaders and indigenous leaders and land rights activists and gay activists. Uh, you know, so... And again, we could talk about multiple instances of this. The U.S. supports the government of Colombia right now, which in my view has had the worst human rights record in all of the Western Hemisphere for decades. In the last year alone, 150 social activists have been killed in Colombia, mostly by state forces. And yet this is viewed as a democracy. Uh, Colombia has more internally displaced people than any other country on earth, even more than Syria, at over 7 million internally displaced people. And they've been displaced in many cases by U.S.-backed death squads acting on behalf of both domestic and, and transnational companies particularly mining companies and agricultural companies like Chiquita Banana, uh, which have used the paramilitaries to move people, disproportionately Afro-Columbians and indigenous peoples, off their land so that they could seize the land. Again, though, this does not raise any concerns amongst uh, people in terms of uh, human rights or or democracy. Um, it, it's just incredible to me the double standard that, that's applied um, by the U.S. government and the media when it comes to, to looking at these types of issues. 
And why is it that the U.S. government and media kind of offer the same narrative here? I mean, that's a, a great question, you know. Um, and I think, you know, we have to go back to um, Chomsky and Herman's wo- wo- uh, work, you know, particularly uh, the book Manufacturing Consent, which talks about this. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it. One, because all pretty much all the mainstream media uh, depends – they're either owned by corporations outright or they depend very heavily on corporate advertising um, uh, and underwriting to exist, even NPR. Um, and, and these corporations – really influence how things like Venezuela uh, are covered. In addition, so, so one, you have this very pro-corporate bent. Um, there's also an instinctual desire to believe in, in American exceptionalism, this idea that the U.S. is a beacon of democracy in the world. I think a lot of so-called journalists actually believe this, and so they're very inclined just to believe what the State Department is putting out, even if it's the Trump State Department. I mean, again, there's a huge irony there. And that, I believe, also impacts greatly, uh, particularly uh, coverage of U.S. uh, foreign policy. And you add to that, the the fact that uh you know news outlets you know in order to save money and frankly uh time and effort uh tend to just rely on state department and government statements about what the US is doing for the news cuz it's easy right you know you just report as truth whatever the secretary of state says or john bolton says or elliot abrams says and that's your news story. You don't have to uh, uh, track anyone down in Venezuela, for example, to do that. Um, so there's a certain laziness, too. So you, you combine all these things that I'm saying, and, and you have a very one-sided uh, version um, uh, of U.S. foreign policy. How, is there any real difference between Democratic and Republican policy on Venezuela? Virtually none. Um, again, uh, the sanctions against Venezuela began in 2015 under Obama. Um, Obama twice, uh, declared Venezuela, um, a threat to U.S. national security, which has absolutely no basis in fact. Um, and right now, again, Democrats who oppose nearly everything Trump is doing are supporting uh, his regime change plans in Venezuela with only a few notable exceptions. Again, the two parties tend to be very much uh, in agreement when it comes uh, to these sorts of policies. It runs very deep within the U.S. political system, but also within the American psyche, I think. 
it makes it very easy to get people on board uh, to support these sorts of interventions. With the racial and class dynamics uh, at play in Venezuela, how would you say that they play into racial and class dynamics in the United States? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, I don't, there seems to be a disconnect between how people view, you know, racial issues in particular and and economic issues in the U.S. and how they view it in Venezuela. That is to say that people who who would tend to support civil rights uh, for African Americans and indigenous people in the U.S. aren't necessarily seeing how that's linked to supporting uh, rights for those same people in Venezuela. I think in large part because they don't understand that 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 is an issue, you know. Um, But it seems to me if you care about the rights of of oppressed minorities, you would support oppressed minorities in Venezuela. And that would mean supporting the Bolivarian Revolution, which has done a lot for those folks. What can our listeners do to stand in solidarity with oppressed people I think folks need to, one, be very uh, vocal in opposing U.S. intervention in Venezuela, including uh, sanctions against Venezuela. People can do that by going to protests. There's a number of protests coming up nationally uh, and locally around these issues. Uh, People should support. People should be writing letters to their editor. Uh, on this issue, uh, lobbying Congress to oppose U.S. intervention in Venezuela. And if people have the resources and the time and the wherewithal, they should go to places like Venezuela and see what life is like for people, to see what's really happening there, and to show support for their struggle. You know, in the 80s, there was a huge movement around Latin America and particularly Central America, in in this type of solidarity work, where people went to places like Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, during uh, you know times of great conflict that the U.S. was supporting, and um, and really offered you know support for the resistance against U.S. intervention, and I think. People, people are still doing that. I mean, that's still that kind of solidarity work is still being done, but not on the level it was in the eighties. And I think, I think people need to, to really return to to doing that sort of work. And with all the misinformation out there, how can folks truly be in touch with what's happening in Venezuela and not just the U.S. propaganda that's offered? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think there are some great resources out there. On this, VenezuelaAnalysis.com is excellent. Um, I would urge people to take a look at that. Look, Counterpunch, um, Global Research, .ca is very good. Um, Telesor English or Spanish, if you speak Spanish, is very good. You know, um, I'd like to offer, I have a new book out, Plot to Control the World, How the U.S., has spent billions to change the outcome 
of elections around the world. I urge people to check that book out as well. I actually just got asked by my publisher, Skyhorse Publishing, to write a new book on Venezuela, which I'm doing right now, and, and I'm working very hard to get that book out so people can take a look for that in the near future. In any case, those are some places I think I think people can find it, you know, a different side of this story. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today and helping inform our listeners about what's happening right now. Well, Jordan, thank you for the opportunity. I'm very grateful and uh, very grateful for your work. So keep on keeping on. Thank you so much. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. If you want to keep up to date with the Millennial Politics Podcast and the brand new podcast, make sure to follow us on social media, subscribe to both podcasts on iTunes, and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear the newest episodes of the Millennial Politics Podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.